Good morning, New Life. So cool to be with you. Uh, my wife sends her uh, regrets. She's in another state helping care for a sick family member. So normally she travels with us everywhere. There are 78 locations of Alliance churches in upstate New York. And so we're on the road to a different one every week. So we get to see the cities and the hotel rooms and the restaurants. But most importantly, we get to see you face to face. So uh, if you have anything you want to talk about, any questions, any thoughts, love to share with you afterwards. You know, uh, both Sally and I and Barbara, we lived in West Virginia for uh, a good while. Barbara and I were there for five years, Sally there 20 years, uh, West Virginia. And it's amazing. It's an amazing place. Most people don't understand it. In fact, most people think that it's Western Virginia. No, no, it's a different state. And, uh, you know, there's some wonderful uh, places of economic activity. At one point, the lowest unemployment in America was in Morgantown, West Virginia, where we live. Uh, but 10 minutes outside of Morgantown, you can be in a holler where people don't have money, education, good medical care, and some pretty tough stuff going on in places in West Virginia. So glad to hear you've got some ministries going on there. By the way, I love that overwhelming song and all of that. I once did a 15-part sermon series entitled The Overwhelming Weight of God just because he's so great and we don't really gain our health in Christ until we feel that weight, just how great God is. So it's cool to sing about that. So I uh, wanted to introduce to you Sally Fry. Uh, she's been working with me in the district office now for seven years. We do all the placement stuff together, the education stuff. Uh, we work together on a ton of different things. Um, Sally just completed a doctorate in strategic leadership. And uh, like is true in most places, it's certainly true in our district that leadership is our number one most challenging thing. I can pay for stuff like new church plants and what have you at least a little bit. I don't always have the leaders. So we are working hard on leadership training, and that's one of Sally's key areas. So I'm just going to have her say hello, tell you a few things that are going on in our district. It is so good to be here this morning. One thing that I wanted to mention is in the southern part of the state, we actually have a church that has um, kind of adopted a smaller church that was um, down to maybe six or eight people, and it has become their satellite campus. So what was formerly our Circle Drive Church in Sydney is now coupled with our church in Appalachian, and they have renamed themselves the Gateway Alliance Church. So that ministry has just started, and it's, it's um, gaining a campus pastor in September, so I know they would love your prayers as they figure out all the logistics that it takes to actually have kind of two campuses going on at the same time. And I also just wanted to mention, for anyone that is in the room or that you know who feels like they're called to perhaps increase their influence in ministry. So it doesn't mean that you have to go into full-time ministry, but perhaps you're looking for some additional training. The Alliance has a school of ministry, which is 30 credits of Bible theology and ministry classes that anyone can take. And what it does is it increases your knowledge in all of those areas. 
And for those who eventually would want to go and be licensed with the Christian Missionary Alliance, it actually fulfills the educational requirement for that. So just keep that in mind. And if you know of anyone who has thought, you know what, I would love to dig a little bit deeper, uh, please reach out and connect with me, and I will absolutely give you some options and connect you with that program. Cool. So, you know, I always pray a lot. What do I, what do I preach when I travel to different churches? Uh, you know, what's, what's on the Lord's mind for a particular congregation? Uh, I've really thought and prayed a lot about just the return of the Lord and us needing to think about that and how that impacts how we live. So I'm going to preach on the coming day of God. It's in 2 Peter 3. If you stick with me in that, those Bible verses, however you look at that, I will be stationed right there, and I will not move far afield from that. One of the good things about the manuscript is that all of the references are printed out in bold type. So if you think everything that I'm saying is malarkey, what you do is you just read the bold parts, and then you'll be good because those are all the Bible verses. Uh, you'll be A-OK. -okay. So this is a serious message. We live in serious times. Amen? It's like I wish it wasn't this serious. You know, there's a, there's a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. I don't really want it to be this interesting. Uh, I, I wish it was more relaxing. But, but you know, it's, there's a funny thing that uh, I, I observed. I don't know if it was part of a spiritual discernment or what. But the whole world is waiting for a coming king in some form. One thing that I think a lot of Americans don't know about Islam is that many Islamic people are awaiting their own Messiah. He's called the 12th Imam, or the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I. And his coming is, if you didn't know this, associated with a reign of destruction on Western society. There's a whole bunch of stuff I could say about that. Uh, here in America, we are repeatedly obsessed with the next coming of our new king, or queen, as it may be, uh, also known as the president. President is the most powerful man in the world, or woman, since World War II. Um, the powers of that office have increased dramatically, and at this point, I'm going to say they seem royal to me. Let me give you a few examples. Wars with no declarations of war. Spending without budgets capricious refusals to enforce the laws of the land, punishment of unfavored groups, and you can go on and on and on. These are not features of a representative republic. These are features of a monarchy. Um, so just ask yourself how many times the government's doing stuff they never had the power to do, and they don't ask you to agree. They're just saying, you just have to do this. Now, I'm not telling you to be weird social revolutionaries. Uh, Christians should be the best citizens ever. And I think the world needs to see that because so many people are losing their minds. But I'm just asking you to be aware of this idea that the world is waiting for a king. We can barely get done with one election before we start the next thing. It's like, oh my goodness, are we, are we going to start this all over again? And we are. But it be, points to a desperate need in the human soul for a leader who will help us. Well, how foolish is that? Let me give you a list. And this, I, I wrote in the text 50 years. Take it back 70 years. 
failures of American presidents. Failure to stop the growth of the national debt, now approaching $30 trillion. Failure to stop the killing of unborn babies, now over 60 million since 1973. Failure to stop the routine mass illegal entry into the U.S. of non-citizens. Failure to stop the decline of education. Failure to stop the decay of our cities. Failure to stop the reduction of jobs and buying power. I could say a lot about each one of these, but you're New Yorkers, and the buying power of the New York State family peaked the same year that we landed a man on the moon, 1969, and since then, your buying power has decreased every single year. So, I look at all this and say, the world is a mess, amen? Anybody confused about that? It was a mess yesterday. It's a wreck today. It'll be a ruin tomorrow. And you and I can't fix it, not by any direct human action. But the whole point of this is that people are, in, are investing their hearts. We need that leader and we never get one. But guess what? You and I, as believers in Jesus, we have a better king. A king that never lets us down. A king who always does what he promises. Who loves us every single day. One of the things we say all the time in our district ministry, and this was something that isn't news to anyone, but it's a challenge to do it. Albert Benjamin Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, he said, and people don't get how radical he was, right after the Civil War, he founded this church group that you're part of, and it's founded on a simple idea that there's only one basis for membership, and that's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was in a day when they were sticking African Americans up on the second floor somewhere next to the coat closet so they wouldn't have to be seen. How radical. And we like to say there's only one team. If you believe in Jesus, there's only one team. That means whether you're doing well or badly, there's only one team. We're all in this together. It's a family. Everyone's in. So it's so crucial that we just grasp that and realize we have that because we have a better king. And under his rule, we're blessed. So the Apostle Peter in his second letter, if you wanted to follow along, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we'll pick up there. Um, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, the Apostle John had a vision of the same thing. There's so many places I could go here. But in Revelation 19, he wrote this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the question we're going to ask is, when the king comes back, and he comes back as a military ruler, like he never did before, 
and there is fire and judgment associated with his return. Why does he come back like that? And the Apostle Peter gives the answers, and that's why, again, this is a serious message, and we live in serious times, and we need to see it with that level. But Peter's going to answer that. He's going to give three answers to the question, why does the king come back with that much power? Um, And first of all, the king comes to recompense a world which mocks its creator. We're going to unpack each one of these. Secondly, he comes to validate everything he's told the world about himself. And thirdly, he comes to rescue those who trust in him, those whose lives display the marks of faith. So, I mixed up my pages here. I'm going to straighten them out. I don't want to preach them out of order. Man, how confusing that would be. So, people who don't know Christ are going to face an angry king who comes with fire and comes with judgment. And Peter gives us three different characteristics of, of the people who experience that and, and why that's true. And in chapter 3, the first part of verse 3, he says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. You know, there's some forms of mocking that aren't that terrible. Um, Kids do it, you know, and we try to get a grip on that and teach them not to do that. It's a bad habit. And there's some forms of goofing around where mocking just doesn't matter that much, you know, and and I'm not sure it's the end of the world if someone says my shirt is ridiculous, you know. Um, You know, why are you wearing that crazy, gigantic Hawaiian shirt? You know, I, it doesn't bother me. There's no great damage done or whatever. But, you know, there are some things that are mocked which are actually much more important. And I got to say, in my lifetime, it grieves me to see motherhood mocked as not being worthy of a woman of substance. How foolish. How foolish. Mothers create the world which is to come. Whatever the world's going to be like in the next 20 or 30 years, it's going to be because of the people that have been launched by the families and the mothers of this world. So that's a very serious form of mockery. Now jack it up to the maximum. Mocking the perfect God. The God who loves you every day, no matter what the God who's perfect and holy, tells you the truth every day, no matter what. The God who never lets you go, who never fails to do what he says he's going to do for your benefit. The God who's perfect and holy, who's never said anything untrue or done anything wrong. Now, what does it mean to mock that? Now you see why God is angry. God's not going to tolerate it. So God comes to bring judgment on those who deserve it in that way. Second characteristic of those who will face judgment is in the second part of verse 3. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And, you know, we, we write the word lusts, and it sounds terrible, and 
and the Greek word can mean that, but it really just means human desires, and sometimes they're intense and they go the wrong way. So, so a second characteristic of people who will face judgment is that they follow their own lusts. And instead of following a good shepherd, instead of following any authoritative moral order, or even a set of positive values, they're just going to do what feels good to them. We live in the day of what feels good to me at the moment. Amen? Crazy stuff going on. And sometimes if people feel desperate, they just act on that without any thought to consequences or, or what's going on. Um, I, I don't know where you go from here. Like, I don't care what the law is. I don't care how it harms other people. I'm going to do what feels right to me at the moment. That's anarchy. That's crazy stuff. Uh, we're really in trouble. And I think it's part of the end days. People are desperate. They don't know where to turn. You know, what, what do we have going on in our culture? Uh, crazy stuff about feeling states. We have people who are wildly concerned about climate change who are rich enough to fly their private planes to every conference on climate change. Do you know how much pollution a carrying a single person in an entire jet puts out. And it's not just one time. They do it over and over and over again, I thought. Their feeling tells them that there's some issue with the climate, and they're right about that to some extent. But their feeling also says, I should fly my jet. It just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. There are actors who speak out against private gun ownership, and I'm not a gun crazy, uh, I like to shoot now and then. Um, but on the one hand, they're speaking out against gun ownership by private citizens. On the other hand, they're making tens of millions of dollars, making films with this point. And you check me on this. Just call up a list of action films. These are films where every problem is solved by shooting someone. That's not reality. That is not the world. And on the one hand, they're lobbying against private gun ownership. On the other hand, they're making millions and millions of dollars on that because that's what they desire and probably the worst one for the Western world, even though we know the clear damage that it does is just totally following our desires in the area of sexual indulgence. Um, literal craziness that we have going on in our cultures. And please get this point. I don't judge any of these people. I'm not their judge. They have a judge. His name is God, capital G, judge with a capital J. Because apart from Christ, we're all like that. We all just, what else do we have? We follow the desires that we have at the moment. And the Lord says, no, no, no. There's a God in heaven. You follow me. And they're saying, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Third thing, Christ returns to a people who have trusted their own private judgments. And uh, in verse 4, Peter writes, they're saying this, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They're saying this, we've observed the world for ourselves, and it's our opinion that the king is not coming. Think about how crazy that is. The Bible says that God is spirit. You cannot see spirit. 
How are you going to see whether the king is coming or not? You know, this was a huge problem for medicine, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history. Uh, uh, most remarkable indebtedness we all have to Joseph Lister, the surgeon who discovered that surgeons need to clean their instruments. And it took decades for the American medical establishment to accept this truth. And I think a key part of it is because you can't see germs. We tend to live by, I believe what I see. I'll see it when I believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. And you can't see germs. So decades for that simple thing to come to pass. We cannot safely follow our own opinions. And so the king comes back to deal with the world full of people who mock him. They follow their own lust and they reject the truth. And I would say this, a little fear of God would be appropriate, right? In the face of an angry God. So I told you this was going to be serious because there's plenty of serious passages in the Bible. Secondly, and on a less frightening zone, the king comes back to authenticate everything he's told us about himself. Uh, uh, you know, he's, it basically is, is structured like this. I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this, and most people are not listening. And then when he comes back with power, it's like everybody's going to smack their heads and say, I should have been listening. I should have been listening. So... Peter gives us a short list of things that God is going to authenticate. Number one, he tells us that he made the whole world. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. But by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water. There's a lot of discussion about exactly how God did it. I'm pretty sure that we'll never finally dope it all out. But we can just accept this simple idea. God's saying he made everything. And that is absolutely revolutionary. So this coming king, the one who's coming back, he made everything. You know, I, I sometimes try to put my head into what must have been going through Jesus' head when he was walking around on the earth in human form. Every person he touched, he could have thought, I made that shoulder. You know, every hand he held, I made this hand. Every family I made those kids. Can you imagine? I think it's a pretty good thing they didn't tell us everything that he was thinking, right? Because he also knew how broken we all were, right? This person's broken this way. This person's broken this way. God also tells us he destroyed that world with a flood through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. This is a, this is a crucial thing. The maker can also unmake. It's his creation. He has that power. Nobody can stop him. He's told us that he's promised to unmake the world once again, this time by fire in verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's fire ahead of us. He said, I won't, I won't destroy the earth again with water, but he didn't promise not to destroy it with fire, and that is coming. He's told us that he's master of time itself. I love this. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Did you ever wonder, like, 
um, when you're praying about something, why is it taking the Lord so long? You know, and, and uh, patience is required for these moments. But he's saying that I'm, I'm, God functions in his own time. And crucial to the mockers, God is not fading away over long periods of time. He's not like fading out. Um, no, he's still there just as strong as he ever was. God has also told us that he's delaying judgment for a redeeming purpose. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, absolutely crucial, but for all to come to repentance. This is grace. This is God extending the time. He wants to give the people that he has made every opportunity to trust him and to learn how wonderful he is and and to gain eternal life and the filling of the Holy Spirit and all of those things. It's grace upon grace. So in spite of everything that he's told us about our fate and the destiny of the world, the world, specifically lost people, are going to be shocked and surprised when he does come back. And verse 10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I mean, have you ever been ripped off and you didn't know it? And you find it later. I had a guitar amp stolen from me one time. I thought, I don't even know how that happened. I don't know who could have done it. It's crazy. I thought I always knew where my stuff was. Um, but the world is going to have that kind of shock when the Lord comes back, the day of the Lord, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is not complicated. The world has spent its time saying, there is no God, I don't have to face him, he's not coming, there is no God, I don't have to face him, he's not coming, and then he comes. And they're like, what? It's been blocked out for so long. So, crucial thing. Why is the return of the king described as the day of God or the day of the Lord? Because since the fall of mankind, it's been our day. We do what we want. That's what it means to be lost and separated from God. And I, I have a friend who's in uh, chaplaincy ministry, and one of his favorite questions when people have dug themselves a deep hole is, he'll ask, how's that working for you? <laughs> you dug your own hole. You're in, you're in trouble. And he's there to help them and to give them a blessing and, and guidance. But that's what the human race has been doing. So when, when the Lord returns... It's his day. He does what he thinks is right and necessary. And the time where the humans just do whatever they want is really over. So, so this is God's great authentication. He says, I've told you this, I've told you this, all these different things about who he is and what his plan is and how it's all going to work. And he is going to come roaring back. And the world is going to say, we should have listened. We should have listened. Everything that God has said is true. Finally, and the best part, when the king returns to usher in the day of God, he's not just going to recompense those who reject him. He's going to rescue those who trust in him. What a wonderful thing. And so Peter describes this as a, a pattern of life. And you know, scriptures always keep those two things together. That if you really met the king, 
you act like you've met a king. I mean, do you know Christians who don't act like they've met a king? Their lives don't really change or whatever. And this is a, a huge issue. Um, and it's a, a reason for reflection for all of us to make sure our faith is authentic, that we're really trusting the real God, that we've really put our hearts in his hand and our future, uh, because when we do receive him for real, the Holy Spirit comes in, change starts to come to pass, and uh, even if you're stuck in a sin, raise your hand if you're not stuck. No, don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> we're all stuck in some sin somewhere. But we hate it. That's the Holy Spirit in our hearts saying, yeah, you're stuck. We'll get you out of this eventually. In the meantime, keep hating it. Keep repenting of it. Keep asking to get out. So, so Peter, with that concept that those who actually believe, who actually trust the king and know that he's coming, their lives actually change, so then he takes that fact and smacks us with this important question. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? What should Christians do if you know that there's no point in writing an epitaph on your gravestone that says, hey, did you see my cool house? Hey, did you see my cool boat? Nothing you're looking at right now will make it past the judgment of God at the end of time. That's a sobering thought. Yeah, be pleased that God has blessed you with things that, that you can use to live a good life and, and enjoy and be at peace. Because the, the Bible says that God has given all things richly for us to enjoy. That's, that validates. Receive the blessings, but know that. Everything you can see with your eyes goes up in smoke when the Lord comes back, except for the word of God and the souls of people. That's how God sees the world. We're totally distracted by shiny things, right? <laughs> God sees the souls, and this is where his heart is invested, and that's why this is a king who is working every day to lead men, women, and children into a knowledge of himself. And he wants us to be on the same thing. So, what sort of people we should be? Number one, if we believe, we should be people who strive for holy conduct. And that's two, that's two um, prongs. First of all, uh, we actively avoid the evils of sin in a bent world. And we need to fight for this. We really, really do. We need to be swimming upstream all the time. The world is going the wrong way. The flow is going in the wrong direction. We, we could all wish that it weren't this way. It is that way. And so I'm urging you, fight for this. Be tough on yourself. Every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will say, that thing over there in your life, that stinks to high heaven. Get that thing out of here. Take God seriously when the Spirit talks to you that way. And again, you might not know how to get out right away. Maybe it's a thing that's got claws in your soul. Don't worry, God will get you out. But we need to fight for that. And we're living in a day of, I think, some of the worst temptations in the history of the world. Do you know there's a, there's a term in economics called moral hazard? Do you know what, 
it's talking about, you can take a loan and you'll never have to pay it back. That's a moral hazard. If you're in government and you can print money whenever you want, and if you think I've got a weird hobby horse going here, look up the statistics on the M1 money supply, the number of dollars that are in circulation. Can you imagine that that's not a moral hazard? What if you're a leader and you have power and your thought is, I can print money anytime I want. That's a moral hazard. But we all have that moral hazard. There's just different, different ways that that comes upon us. But these temptations, the internet for all of its blessings is also one of the biggest temptations ever to hit the human race. I can do the wrong thing with my mind like that. That didn't used to be true. If you're living in a cabin in the woods, you're going to have to work hard to sin that badly. You know, you've got logs and cows. Um, not to say that your mind is clean at that time. But, you know, Martin Luther, he wrote this. He said, the child of God in this conflict receives wounds daily, but never throws away his arms or makes peace with his deadly foe. So fight, fight, fight. There's also the thing about positive deeds. And I do like the fact that I saw some neat opportunities out on your bulletin board to connect with the community, to be involved in good things that are happening, uh, pregnancy center stuff, ministry to, to needy people in different ways. And, and you know, anything that comes from a heart to serve God is a holy thing. You know, it doesn't have to be framed in a religious way. It doesn't have to be a churchy thing. But, but the holiness of God is about everything that's good, beautiful, and true. And if that's where your heart is going, if that's where you're focused, let your energies flow that way. And Lord's using all of those things to mold us into his image. Secondly, if we believe in the return of Christ, we should seek godliness. That's the heart to give honor and reverence to God. You understand that there are honor-based cultures and that they have their own craziness associated with them, but we're not an honor-based culture if you're in the West or if you're in America. We're, a, we're an individualism and pragmatism-based culture. What can I do? Um, how does it work? Those are the questions that we ask. And so it's hard work for us to ask every single day, how do my words and actions glorify God today? That's not an instinct for us. We have to fight for that by the work of the Holy Spirit. A number of years ago, my wife and I took a trip to Scotland uh, her family is from there, and I learned some interesting things. Uh, on the Isle of Hoy, up in the Orkney Islands, there is a huge manor house called Melsetter House, and that's her family heritage. They lost it during World War II, but for generations, this huge stone structure, all these outbuildings, their own chapel, an entire group of people, the whole region worked for them. And so we were just there to visit and look around, take pictures. We went to the cemetery where there is an entire building that is the uh, mausoleum for the Moody clan. And I got to tell you, I was moved when I saw what was written in stone up above the doorway to that mausoleum in Latin, Soli Deo, Laus Honor, 
at Gloria. To God alone be praise, honor, and glory. And I'm not sure everyone named Moody totally got that, but what a great thing that in that heritage, at least for some, that was alive. Let God be glorified and honor in all of those things. Thirdly, those who believe in the return of king are occupied looking for the coming of the day of the Lord. Lean to it. Um, the day God brings us and our Lord together. We're raptured. We're reconnected. Uh, we get the band back together, as sometimes people like to say. How great that will be to see our Lord face to face. You know, the Apostle Paul said, now we see through a glass dimly, but then we shall see face to face. And that'll be the moment when suddenly all this fuzziness in front of our eyes, we will see God as he really is and, and be with him. Um, Paul wrote about it as well. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You know that. There have been many generations in Christian history where the expectation of Christ's return was lost. They're just not expecting him to come back. How negatively would that impact you if you lost all of that motivation? Um, I want to be found serving him. I would be very happy to fall over you know, in the middle of some act of service or he can just grab me out of whatever I'm doing uh, so that when he comes back, I'm ready and willing and busy about what he's doing. And, and uh, I think that the, the loss of his return is certainly gone for our culture, but let it not be true of us as believers. Amen? Let us be leaning in and say, Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha in our hearts. Fourth thing, and we're almost done here. Uh, if we're looking for the king to come, we need to do the things that speed his return. And that takes a little unpacking. Peter says, we should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Well, what hastens his return? Uh, we've just learned that God is patient. He is extending this time period so that men, women, and children can come to Christ. So that's the thing that we're about. We need to regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, Peter says in verse 15, and we're the instruments. We're the way that God does it. God is doing something called gathering the fullness of the Gentiles, bringing in people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation so that what's in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 will come to pass in the heavenly realm. That people of every color and every location and every racial identity and every everything will be there worshiping God together with one voice. And this is what God is working on. So how much should we be engaged in the very thing that the Lord is doing? And it's our job. You know, there's no plan B. There's no like, well, if the church doesn't do it, I'll get like the Kiwanis Club to do it. That's a great club, but they don't have our mission. We're the only organization that has this mission. And so it's ours as a group. It's ours as individual. You know, uh, the founder of the Alliance, Albert Simpson, has been ridiculed over the year for harping on this one thing, that we hasten 
Christ's coming by sharing our faith? And people think, well, and I think this is a good question to ask. Well, how can that possibly be? If God is a sovereign God, he comes whenever he wants. Of course. But if we're his instruments, he's using us as we share our faith. And if God himself says that that's how it works in his word, I'm going to roll with that. I can't explain it theologically. How, does a, how, do you, how do you hasten the action of a sovereign God? I don't know. But what I do know is I should share my faith. I should help other people to meet him because whenever God thinks that's done, uh, he's going to say, okay, we're done. One of the beautiful things about this is if we want to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord, you think, well, why would we want that? Everything's going to get destroyed. And the answer is extremely simple. That's not our destiny. We are not destined for wrath. In fact, the wrath of God was already poured out because of our sin on Christ. It's all done. It doesn't have to be redone. And so when all this burning occurs, uh, we'll be gone. And I think this is a wonderful thing to share with people because if we can get people to understand that this is God's world, he is coming back, and answer the question, how can I be okay with God when he comes back? We can share this with them that those who trust in him are not destined for wrath. So what are we charged to do? Here's an example. Paul wrote this to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. And if the word preach scares you, I'll give you the Dave Lynn Koine version. Share the word, if that makes you feel better. Teach the word. Text the word. Video blog the word. Lawn sign the word. <laughs> Whatever works for you in the way that God has wired you so crucial that we be ready in season and out of season to do that you know what that means when we feel like it and when we don't when it looks like it'll work to us and when it doesn't look like it will work by the way how many times have you thought this is an opportunity to share my faith but it certainly won't work at this moment i'm not sure if that's my thought or if the devil sticks that in you know uh but what uh we're being told by the apostle paul is do it when you feel like it do it when you don't feel like well, to conclude, we're also looking forward to the rule of Christ in a future messianic age. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's not lose this crucial teaching. This was Christ's world. Read the Gospel of John chapter 1. He made everything. Our fall into sin as the human race interrupted the purposes of God for this earth. Not that he was caught by surprise, but he will return to a future messianic age. It's future to us. Sometimes we call it the millennial kingdom where Christ rules and reigns right here on this earth where the wind blows and the trees give forth leaves.
And the scripture says that he will rule the nations with righteousness and that it rolls for a thousand years. This is God's heartbeat. Why would God want an earth that's full of evil? He doesn't. And so he is coming back to restore the earth and to put in the messianic age. So here's a very important thing to know about the coming day of God. All of this stuff, the good stuff, the scary stuff, none of it hinges on whether or not you and I believe it. God's God. He does what he wants when he wants. It doesn't matter if I'm waiting for him or not. The only person I can hurt by not looking forward to his coming is myself. And so how much do we embrace that concept? I see the people of this world desperate for a king. I think partly what we're seeing now is a run-up to the coming of Antichrist. Because at some point, the world is going to have to be so desperate that they're going to say, we don't care about our own presidents and kings. We don't care about our sovereign borders. We don't care about our own freedoms. We just need a world ruler to save us. And the world will buy in. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. The good thing is, there is a king who will save you. Who will always care about you. Who will never lead you astray in any way. Who will bless you every single day. Even on those days when you forget him. He will always be faithful in that way. And we have the privilege to introduce people to that coming king. So, what's going to be your part in bringing back the king? In your circle of life, you have people that you can connect with. And by the way, I've discovered lately that I can connect like that with people. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I wish I did. I know people who lead people to Christ at the grocery store. I don't do that. I share Christ in settings like this. But I have had opportunities to share Christ in places where like in an instant, I'm suddenly talking to a complete stranger about the things that really matter. And I'm like, wow, I don't know how I got here, but I don't want to flub this. So I do the best that I can um, with or without the gift of evangelism. But ask God, who's he placed near you? Could be family, friends, neighbors, workout place, businesses, whatever. And, and say, Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I want to lean into this. I want to introduce people to the God who never fails us, who's full of compassion and truth. And take the challenge to be walking in holiness when Christ returns. So these are the questions that have to be answered by us, people who believe in the return of the king. And I'll ask you today, what are your answers to Peter's questions? Now, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, please take my word that you don't want to face the coming day of God unless you are. Here's an important fact. Every single time someone prays, Lord, please forgive my sins. Every single time, God says, I will. They've already been paid for by Christ. No punishment is necessary. It's all grace. 
It's a gift. And so I would urge you, don't miss that opportunity. God is holding it out to you if you've not yet trusted Christ. This is the most important decision you'll ever make. Nothing is more crucial than this because nothing else determines your eternity. So let's pray and then we'll conclude. Father, thank you so much for the privilege. Lord, I know this is full of heaviness and, and it's all right here in your word and you said all of your word is good for us. It's encouraging, it's strengthening, it's guiding to us. I pray, Lord, that we, we won't get lost in the feeling of heaviness, but that in a very thoughtful way we'll appreciate the significance that you are coming back, that you are the judge of every man, woman, and child who is born and whoever will be born and you are also the redeemer of the world who is not eager for any to fall into lostness and destruction but is is totally eager for everyone to come to know you to become part of your forever family and to be blessed together lord use us as your instruments even if we can't figure out the exact timing of everything in your Bible about the end times, Lord, we can certainly figure out that on the days that we're alive, we have a great privilege to be your instruments, to add to people who will in heaven sing with one voice every race and color and creed. Uh, glory to you, our God, and praise to our Redeemer, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.